I'm Kayla Branch, and you're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining me this week as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. My co-host, Noria Martinez-Keel, is out this week on a much-deserved vacation, and so it'll just be me with two of our reporters who have been covering the COVID-19 crisis very intently. in Oklahoma reached a sorrowful milestone recently now that more than 1,000 Oklahomans have died from COVID-19. And now that it's October, we've all been living in this strange world for nearly seven months. And with so much news over those months, the virus, it's an election year, wildfires are raging, police brutality is being discussed. It has kind of seemed like the impact of the number of real people in our community dying from COVID-19 has somewhat lost its grip, that the impact has um, gone down as people are you know, just trying to survive these times. But reporters Carmen Foreman and Adam Kemp are with me today to talk about the reporting that they have done um, on the people who have died in Oklahoma and the loved ones that are mourning those losses. So Carmen and Adam, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And like I said, both of you have been working on a story where you have talked to families that have lost loved ones to COVID-19. And I just want to jump in and give you both space to you know, talk a little bit about what those families said to you, how you found those families, and what that reporting has been like. Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest reasons maybe that um, sort of the the mortal, the human toll of COVID-19 has sort of slipped some of our minds and I, I, you know, not slipped entirely, but maybe it's in the back of our minds is because it has really just been so hard to find out who has died from COVID-19. And that's, I'm specifically talking about Oklahoma, but I think it's hard across the nation to find out who has died. Um, You know, if you ask the state department of health, uh, they wouldn't tell you, they give you sort of vague statistics of people within in a certain age range, died in this sort of window, and maybe on this day. Um, and I, you know, I've even heard other reporters complain about how they haven't been able to tell the stories of those who have died in Oklahoma from this virus. Um, so <laughs> it's nerdy, but I saw in like a journalism Facebook group, other journalists in other states were complaining about this same problem, and they were like, "Oh, well, how do I get this information?" And somebody had recommended asking the medical examiner's office. And so um, I did that, and a coworker of mine had already done that. And so now, um, you know, Adam and I have this very extensive spreadsheet of hundreds of people who have died from COVID 19. It's not all 1,000 people that have died, now more than 1,000 deaths, but. it's it's some of those folks who are suspected to have died from complications of COVID-19. Um, and so then, you know, we did what any good reporters do. We just started trying to track down family members of those people um, and calling them or finding them on Facebook, um, seeing if they own businesses, finding them there. Um, and I think, you know, Adam can start off by talking about, he talked to honestly, a really devastated family. Yeah, I reached out to um, the family of William Tallbear Sr. Uh, he's a member of the 
was a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribe, uh, 85 years old, had passed away from COVID-related symptoms uh, on September 1st. And kind of the spreadsheet that Carmen was talking about earlier, uh, we saw on there that he was listed as not having very many underlying symptoms. So I wanted to kind of reach out to his family and see, you know, how exactly did he contract this disease? Why did they think it affected him? Um, so harshly and um, once I I got a hold of this family they were just still just a family in mourning completely this was only you know less than a month since their father grandfather and great-grandfather's death Uh, he had something like five kids 14 grandkids 16 great-grandchildren just a man that loved his family that's um, all his family could really talk about was um, just how much they, they called him um, uh, Grandpa Daddy was was his uh, grandpa name because they said he, he was more than just grandpa. He was also our dad. He liked to, you know, step in uh, when it came to life lessons and discipline and, and things like that and really played a huge role for multiple generations of his family. Um, so I talked to his son, uh, Chris Dahlbear, over the phone uh, for a while and um, got the whole family together via Zoom to really share stories about um, Grandpa Daddy, Mr. Tall Bear, and um, just exactly the life he lived. And it, it, it was a fascinating life. He was a Korean War veteran. He was a founding member of the Oklahoma Indian uh, uh, Color Guard. Um, would go around the country for that, uh, appearing in, you know, like... Kansas City Chiefs Stadium went to the Oklahoma City Thunder to do um, to do that. Opened up one of the DC memorials for war veterans. Um, just lived this life that you know saw and experienced a lot. And through his kind of uh, humanitarian efforts, they say that's that's probably how he ultimately uh, contracted COVID nineteen. Um, he was well known around his community for being a giver, would often uh, help neighbors out, take them to the store, take them to the doctor, pick them up. And for the first few months of, of the pandemic, he really did try and keep you know, to himself. He stayed inside. He wore a mask if he had to go out. Even his family you know, did the typical thing I think a lot of us have experienced of we're going to stay away from, from our from our great-grandparents and grandparents for a while and see them from a porch or see them through a glass door of some kind and, and really make sure that, you know, they're safe and healthy. And for the first few months, they really stuck to that. There was a lot of, you know, confusion, I think, about what was safe and what wasn't. Um, Mr. Tallbear ended up going to some funerals uh, for people that he knew, um started helping people again and they the family actually discovered that in one of his trips taking a a a fellow tribe member to the store that uh that's probably when he contracted it as the person that he took also uh eventually had that disease so he drove himself to the hospital on august 10th with pneumonia-like symptoms and uh uh got into the hospital, they gave him a COVID test right then, and then uh, his son uh, came to visit him, and while they were waiting, uh, the doctor came and delivered the news of, hey, 
you have tested positive for this, and we're going to need to put you in isolation right now, so your son has to leave. And uh, his son described that last meeting, that last those last few words between him and his dad. You know, the day he got, the day we found out he was in a hospital, uh, I went and got tested before I went to see him in a hospital. And, uh, you know, I talked to my brothers and sisters before I went up there, and, you know, I told them I was going to go see him. But I got tested first before I was going to be around him, not knowing that he had a, that he was positive yet. And uh, I went up to the hospital. They let me into his room. And both of us were wearing our mask. We were both wearing our mask. And I was in the hospital room when the nurse came in to tell him that he tested positive. And I stood six feet away from him with our masks on. And, uh, you know, we talked about positive things after we cried a little bit. You know, we tried to be positive. And that was the last time I got to talk to my dad. And that's the last time I got to talk to my dad in person. And, you know, the last thing he told me, you know, we said to each other, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't hug or shake hands. But we bumped knuckles. And we both said we love each other. You know, and that's what, you know, my dad wasn't a man to show his emotions, but, you know, it, it, it felt good to hear him say he loved me, you know. And that was the last time I see my dad in person. So, you know, I talked to a few families. Um, one, um, I talked to essentially the partner of a 39-year-old woman in Stillwell, um, and she had passed away from complications of COVID-19 after she had been in the hospital for a little more than two weeks, um, and her name was Michelle England, and so I talked to her partner. Um, his name is Thomas Spotted Crow, um, and they're both um, Native American citizens, and Thomas, uh, he kind of, you know, he said he was kind of worried about his wife. She had diabetes. Um, I believe she had a high blood pressure. And so he was kind of concerned, like, what would happen if she got this virus? And, you know, he believes and she had believed that she picked it up at work. Um, and then, you know, she felt kind of sick the first few days, got tested, got a positive result, and then things just kind of got worse from there. Her breathing was really the main problem. Um, it got so bad. I mean, she had to go to the hospital after, um, you know, they have a master bedroom with a bathroom attached, and she would get winded just walking from the bed to the bathroom. Um, and it couldn't have been more than like a, a few feet if that, um, so she had to go to the hospital um, after being in the Stillwell um, or being in a nearby hospital for a while. Um, she was airlifted to a Tulsa hospital, and that's ultimately where she died. Um, and uh, she was really only airlifted like shortly before she died. Um, and they, they sent her to the Tulsa hospital because it, she had just gotten so bad and she'd been in the hospital for so long and she wasn't getting better. So they were concerned about her. Um, but, you know, that's, that is a similar story across the state because then I talked to like a family in Altus who lost their 49-year-old, you know, wife, mother, daughter, grandmother to the virus. Um, and, 
she also had diabetes, so pre-existing condition. Um, and she, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. She was in the hospital for six weeks. Um, and the family had not great things to say about the Altus, um, the Jackson County Hospital in Altus. They said that they felt that she wasn't taken care of. She, when she was airlifted to a hospital in Oklahoma City, she had bed sores, that sort of thing. And, you know, the hardest part for them was that they, that they didn't get to see, um, her, her name was Liza Maupin, um, excuse me, Lisa Maupin, and um, they didn't get to see her for six weeks, essentially. Um, the only time that they said they got to see her was when she was airlifted, um, and that the whole family just sort of kind of got to gather there and just wave at her from a distance, and then um, it, her husband, Doug Maupin, who um, talked to me, he got to briefly go up and hug her and just sort of like, you know, embrace her. Um, but then, you know, off she went to a an integrous hospital in OKC and that, that was it. He, He didn't get to see her again until she had passed away and they got to go into her hospital room and say their goodbyes. Um, so that's, you know, emotionally really hard. And, and I asked them a lot of questions about how do you grieve? How, how do you say goodbye when you can't physically say goodbye? Um, and you know, they, they didn't have really good answers. And I think that's because they hadn't really processed her death, which only happened, um, in late August. So it's still pretty fresh. Now I want to, follow up on these stories and ask more generally, you know, who are the people in Oklahoma who are dying? And the state has a very high infection rate and and positivity rate for the virus currently, but our death rate is fairly low compared to other places. But who are the people that are dying? And, um, you know, what demographic groups are they from? What does that look like here? Yeah, predominantly in Oklahoma, um, it's, it's like it is nationwide, where the elderly, um, sick and infirmed, and people with just underlying uh, sicknesses already are, you know, probably the majority of the death. Oklahoma, they don't break that down by, like, if people had underlying diseases or, or anything like that. But from what we can see from uh, the medical examiner's uh, data that we got, it, it does appear that way, that a lot of people did have just underlying sicknesses, diabetes, uh, COPD, things like that, that really made their condition worse once they contracted COVID-19. Um, it's it's also, uh, you know, the, the numbers do show that uh, older age group is most affected. 65 and older um, is 80% of the deaths here in Oklahoma. Um, uh, males, I believe, are a, a bit higher, 55%, I think, uh, of the deaths are male versus female. Um, and then I think, as you could tell from, from the stories that we have found so far, that uh, Native Americans are actually affected quite a bit more um, than, than other places around the country. Um, uh, nearly 10% of Oklahoma's deaths are um, from American Indians. Wow. And you mentioned something earlier, Adam, too, about um, you know once the state reopened, which happened early summer, that it confused some people maybe on what was safe and what was not safe. And 
I'm wondering if either of you heard from these families that you talked to about their thoughts on what Oklahoma has done to handle the pandemic and address the virus and if they you know, had any opinions on how they think that's gone. Yeah, I'd say uh, the, the Tall Bear family that I spoke with, um, while not like outrightly critical of any one entity, just said overall they think leadership on this has been poor. They said nationwide, statewide, they, they think um, it's it's been poor and that um, really the, the politiz- politicization of masks and COVID in general uh, has really led to a lot of uh, unfortunate deaths, they believe, because they, they're from different parts of Oklahoma, Thomas, El Reno, um, some from, from the Oklahoma City area, but they say when they go out and about in Thomas or El Reno with a mask on, they get laughed at, they get poked at, they are, you know, people are, you know, uh, willing to kind of, you know, make fun of them f- for those actions of trying to keep them safe. And they said it was this, this weird, almost delirium they were in where they were like, our, our dad just died, our grandfather just died, and we're out here in public and people think we're the crazy ones. Um, it was it, one of the sons told us about his daughter who went to school and she wears a mask to school every day and had some guys come up to her, confront her, say like, you know, it's a hoax. Like we wish we could get it so we could skip school for a while. And she went back at him with like, you go tell that to my grandfather. You go tell that to my, my, uh, you know, this leader of our family who is gone now. Yeah. What about you, Carmen? Have you heard anything similar? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the families I talked to were like upset with anybody necessarily. I mean, um, and they knew about their family members' um, pre-existing health conditions, and they already had concerns that like, oh, you know, what if my mother gets this? Um, this could be bad. I will say that they did, um, you know, the Maupin family, um, Doug Maupin and his daughters and Altus, they talked, they basically said, you know, what, what is a mask, right? Like if it's one small thing that you can do to potentially save lives, like what, just do it, just do it. Um, and you know, they didn't criticize anybody for, um, you know, not requiring masks. They didn't push for a requirement of masks, but they did say, you know, like, okay, health professionals have recommended this it clearly seems to work so you know it's it's a cheap solution to a complicated problem and it's kind of the only solution we have right now so just take it use it wear it ralph Tallbear, who is the the son that uh, sat in the hospital room with his dad talked about it and gave the example and he has been giving it to people who kind of question him about masks is I sat in a hospital room six feet apart from my dad who was positive. We both were wearing masks and I never tested positive for it. And I tested five days later negative. Still you know, been tested negative. And I'm still tested negative. I get tested regularly. And I wear we all try to wear a mask. And you know it frustrates me to hear these people say that this isn't real. You know well, my dad had to go the way he did. And, you know, it's not fair. It really isn't. 
You know, that man, like we said, he was healthy. He probably had five, ten more years in him. Easily. But, you know, this, this pandemic is just, it's changing the world and it's changing the way the way we live now. And a lot of people just need to accept it. Well, last question for you both. I mean, looking forward right now, it seems that the outlook isn't great that people expect, you know, the pandemic to continue for several more months. Um, maybe there's going to be a vaccine coming out quickly. I know, Carmen, you've been reporting on how the state plans to handle that. Um, but when it comes to you know people uh, continuing to catch the virus and potentially dying from COVID-19, I mean, how is the state preparing? How are the hospitals preparing? And kind of what do you two, from your reporting right now, plan to see over the next several months? Um, the, the state leaders kind of say that they, um, you know, they're they're in sort of mitigation mode right now. I guess just sort of like. Um, sort of like a, okay, this is our reality. We are going to be stuck with this for however many months. We don't know. Um, so we just have to deal with it. And, um, the problem is that, I mean, there's a lot of problems in there, but we're heading into flu season. Um, there are already some concerns that hospital capacity might be limited right now. I think I saw a story from earlier this week and that all the ICU beds in Stillwater were taken. They have uh, a very, there's a hospital in Stillwater that has a very small number of ICU beds, but all of them were used up. And, you know, that sort of thing that can really vary uh, day by day, week by week. Um, But public health professionals have concerns that as flu season hits, there are already going to be people that that will be hospitalized for the flu. And then if you add that on top of the people who are hospitalized for COVID-19, plus the people who are hospitalized for broken bones or other illnesses, it could um, stretch hospital capacity way too thin. Yeah, I'm kind of along the same lines. I, I can't say that these stories are enjoyable to tell, but in a way, I think there's a lot to be gained from hearing from the families of those that have, have lost loved ones to this. I think it's a reminder of how serious this is, how it's taken people before their time is up. Um, uh, really hearing from, from this family, the, the Tall Bear family, who had nothing but love and energy and uh, compassion for everyone going through losing a loved one to, to COVID uh, was in, in a way itself uplifting, but they also talked about um, the importance of, of trying to, to stop this where you can. Um, they, they talked about just the simple steps, again, that you can take to, you know, wear a mask, wash your hands, just, um, you know, take those steps that you can really prevent this in a way. Uh, they they described what it was like to have to sit outside of, of their grand their father and grandfather's window and and watch him take his last breath and how agonizing that was for this family and how they they just hope no one else has to go through something like that. Well, thank you so much to both of you for your reporting and for coming on to talk about the stories that you heard from families who have lost loved ones to COVID-19.
Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode. Thank you.